Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of Behind the White Picket Fence, Power and Privilege in a Multi-Ethnic Neighborhood, published by UNC Press this year. I hope that you enjoy this interview. Welcome back to the podcast. This podcast, unlike any previous, uh, has the benefit of a guest host. And so before we talk to our author today, uh, let me just um, allow our guest host, who's a previous guest, to introduce yourself. Candace, would you like to just briefly introduce yourself as our guest host? Yeah, thanks, Heath, for having me back. I'm Candace Smith from Williams College in political science. Um, you were on just a, a short while ago and, and did such a great job. I said, how could we not have you back on really soon? And so um, in the future, you'll come back on with your next book. Um, but until then, I have the, the benefit of your added expertise to talk with um, Sarah today. And so, Sarah, how are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to have read the book. Uh, maybe you could just introduce yourself, um, uh, who you are, where you're at now, where you've been, anything that you'd like to share before we talk about your really interesting book. Sure. Um, so right now I'm at the University of Cincinnati. Um, this is my third year there as an assistant professor of sociology. Um, so I am a sociologist. I'm not a political scientist. Scientist, so I, I so appreciate you having me on anyway. Um, and I earned my PhD and master's in sociology from Duke. Um, and I also have a BA in sociology from Providence College. Wonderful. Um, we, uh, we like to cast our net as, as widely as possible. And, and I know I learned so much from reading sociologists and I learned a lot from the book. Um, Candace, maybe you can get us started with... Um, uh, your reading, you, you recommended this book, and, and you have some, I think, real close um, thoughts on this. So, so maybe you can start um, by, you know, either offering a comment or, or offering a question for Sarah. Yeah. So, I'm really happy to have read Sarah's book, and um, you know, what I like about this book is, you know, considering the adage that all politics is local, Sarah's book, you know, takes us down to the neighborhood level of politics. And we get to see how power is distributed in a multi-space, um, a multi-ethnic space and right outside of people's front door. Um, and we get to the heart of the debate about the politics and policy and diversity. So I wanted to ask Sada um, if she could tell us a little bit more about how she came to study diversity and why she chose to examine how diversity ideology manifests itself at the neighborhood level. Sure. Great question. Um, so for the study of diversity for me was kind of an emergent theme. Um, I'm a qualitative researcher, so um, my approach to the project initially, I knew I wanted to do a neighborhood study. Um, you know, my areas of interest were demography and racial and ethnic inequality, and the thing that kind of connected those two fields was residential segregation literature. Um, so I really wanted to study uh, what would be considered a statistically integrated neighborhood to really kind of create a natural experiment um, of all of the uh, literature that states that, you know, 
But what we really need to reduce racial inequality is have people from different racial and ethnic groups living next door to each other. Um, and so rather than kind of taking that assumption as um, as is, I really wanted to kind of test it out and see if that was the case. You know, and what did social life look like in a multi-ethnic space? Um, so I, you know, put together this study of a, of a neighborhood in Durham that I call Creek Ridge Park. And it's home to white, black, and Latino residents. Um, and so the diversity ideology was really something that um, just ca- captured um, what I saw as somewhat contradictory, although I argue in the book that it, it really is as a natural product of the diversity ideology, um, which is that, you know, you have white homeowners really lauding um, the diversity of the neighborhood and, and sort of praising how great it is that they can live in this neighborhood with lots of different types of people. Um, and then when I asked them questions about their social networks and just observed neighborhood events, um, they were mostly monoracial in the sense that white homeowners were hanging out with uh, other white homeowners. Um, so it seemed, you know, how do you talk about diversity and then also have, you know, very these very um, homogenous uh, networks? And so I argue that diversity ideology really captures that. Um, and by focusing on intentions, um, it really kind of, limits the conversation. So we don't talk about things like power and inequality because what matters is the fact that you think diversity is good or, you know, you think it's something that's that's valuable as opposed to seeing diversity as a challenge to structural racial racial inequality. Now, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about, about this community. Um, uh, for those that, that don't know North Carolina or don't know Durham, um, Tell us a little bit about uh, why this area is was interesting to you and 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 why it, it helped you explore these that in a way that other communities might not have sure um, so one thing that I think is is interesting about this community is that it has a recent immigration of Latino migrants um, and so that's common in North Carolina in general um, and so I really wanted to study um, an a, a neighborhood that had Latino uh, communities as well. Um, and so I, you know, kind of dug around in the census data and looking at lots of different neighborhoods. And then that's how I settled upon this neighborhood, um, looking at the dissimilarity indices and also the fact that there were Latino residents in the area. Um, and so the neighborhood historically was a white um, sort of working middle class neighborhood. Um, and it borders some more um, wealthy neighborhoods that were also predominantly white. Um, and so for much of the early uh, 20th century, it was home to homeowners, single family homes, and now um, is much more of a mix in terms of renters and homeowners. And um, I think in the 1970s, um, a large apartment complex went up, um, which I call Pine Grove Apartments. And um, that was predominantly white when it first started and now is predominantly black and Latino. Um, so I think that's also was one of the really interesting dynamics I wanted to explore was that it was both home uh, to renters and homeowners and then also had, you know, these three different racial ethnic communities. Kim? Yeah, so w- one thing that you mentioned is that blacks, Latinos, and whites had different reasons for choosing to reside in a multi racial neighborhood. Is that right? Right. Uh, Yes. So that was one of the interesting findings. You know, I think the first question I asked everyone was, so why did you move here? (laughs) You know, why did you choose this neighborhood? What brought you here? Um, And I dedicate most of chapter two to really discussing white, white homeowners 
resources there. And so they talk about things like the proximity to downtown, the fact that it's diverse, um, the fact that it's not suburban, which I think is something really interesting that you also find in the gentrification literature, um, sort of the, the juxtaposition of the whiteness of urban space versus the whiteness that's enacted in suburban space. So white residents really did sort of this um, social distancing from other types of white homeowners. Um, and so... Um, and then when I talked to residents of color, um, Latinos really saw it as, as a move up. So they were moving from predominantly Latino neighborhoods now into this multi-ethnic space. Um, and so they definitely, um, in some ways, thought that it was um, thought that it was a, a better better neighborhood. Um, although they also, interestingly, didn't see the neighborhood as Ridge Park. Often when they conceptualized the neighborhood, it was just the street that they lived on. So they didn't necessarily have the same attachment to space or sort of the larger area that, that some of the white residents did. Um, and then black homeowners, um, I, I talk about Cheryl in the book, and she really pinpoints this idea from the literature about the segregation tax. So she basically said, I wanted to live in a multi-ethnic neighborhood, not because I think there's something better about them, but because I know that living in a predominantly black neighborhood is going to um, impact um, sort of my my wealth accruement um, over time. So um, she really was thinking sort of about, about within this racialized system, what kind of decisions do I have to make to make sure that my my home retains its value? Now, so I think that these three distinctions, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> No, no, please continue. Uh, I was just going to say, I think these three different experiences of this space are, are what's really striking because that can then tell us something about sort of the the racial climate and the racial structure of this environment. Now, you, you describe in your title, Power and Privilege, what are some of the institutions that are in place in this neighborhood that um, that the community turns to to, to realize power? Um, there's, there's, uh, there. Is it the community associations? What's, how does this, how does this neighborhood work in terms of institutions? Sure. Yeah, the, the neighborhood association really plays a big part in sort of uh, constructing the norms of acceptability for the neighborhood. Um, and so the association itself is fascinating because it's it's a you know pretty small um, and it's made up mostly of white homeowners from my time there. Um, although some of their events did have you know some homeowners of color and some also some renters of color in attendance as well as some white renters. Um, but it really, you know, uh, Durham, like many cities, is, is a city of neighborhoods. And so, you know, city council is really interested in what, um, you know, neighborhood councils have to say. And so in, in that way, the Neighborhood Association was legitimized as an organization by by the city because it, it had sort of this official title as the Creek Ridge Park Neighborhood Association. Um, and so in, in addition to sort of getting that city level recognition, they also were able to use sort of, that, again, that legal, not, not legal, but official association um, with the police and, you know, to call in the police to have, you know, meetings to, to sort of advocate for changes in, um, in street lights and those kinds of, and those kinds of things. Um, and in the same way, through the listserv and just through sort of informal, um, you know, norms about, you know, watching your neighborhood, they also construct what is appropriate and inappropriate. Appropriate, And so I talk about sort of the, the norms of observing and reporting your neighbors and what's seen as suspicious and, um, and who is seen as suspicious. And so even though people in the neighborhood talked about um, 
feeling safe in the neighborhood, they did, um, you know, sort of talk about, uh, I guess, cultural behaviors as, as, um, as deviant. So it wasn't just that, you know, I'm worried about something getting stolen, but then it's also how then you mark, um, you mark different communities as deviant. Um, and so it, it's, um, it's really interesting that, you know, community policing um, is, is something that people talk about often, but this is almost like the, um, uh, the dispersion of responsibility. So it's not just that the police are responsible for sort of enacting social control in this neighborhood, but it's now individuals because, you know, as sort of representatives of this association are seen as uh, the ones who, who should be enacting social control um, with their neighbors. Kevin? Yeah, so one thing that you mentioned at the very beginning of the book is good intentions do not dismantle structural inequalities. Maybe you can give us a, an example from your book or a concrete example of where good intentions actually serve to perpetuate inequality in Creek Witch Park. Yeah, um, so Tammy is someone that I talk about in in chapter three, and um, she seems to be very, um, she really strikes a chord with people. <laughs> so uh, Tammy is a white homeowner who um, she sort of relays in our interview um, how she uh, has been watching her neighbors, her Latino neighbors, um, and their pet care practices through binoculars in her backyard. And so she kind of relays this entire story about how she came to be in control um, or in, in um, sort of in charge of care for her neighbor's dog. Um, and so she, she talks about how she, you know, good intentions. She really cared about this dog. You know, it, even talking about the dog and its, treat, and its treatment, you know, sort of brought tears to her eyes while we were talking. Um, and then she's, you know, so it, 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 it's clear it's coming from a place of, of care. Um, but then what she does is she basically goes to this neighbor's house every day asking them to take the dog for a walk. And eventually the family um, tells her, please take the dog, um, you know, and, and please find a home for the dog. Um, and then, so it, it's sort of interesting how she um, inserts herself in this family's practice um, because of what she seems as, as, sees as good intentions, right? This idea that, um, you know, dogs should be treated in a very specific way. She doesn't see that as culturally specific, but as universally good. Um, and so I think that this is one way in which, you know, her good intentions created a situation where she is marginalizing her, her Latino neighbors and at the same time, you know, sort of enacting social control where they, you know, are being policed by her um, and basically end up, rather than having to continue in this interaction with her, they, um, they give her the dog. <laughs> Yeah, you tell some really interesting other uh, stories about uh, something as simple as lawn care and some of the differences that, that cut across in ways that you might not even expect that, that cut racial and, and, and ethnic and class lines. Candace, I was wondering, as a political scientist, when you read a book like this, were there any approaches that either were particularly um, thought-provoking for you or that you said, you know, we, we actually look at this in, in political science in a different way, and this this... It really shows me a, a way to, to, to reimagine uh, these kinds of issues. Anything that, that jumps out at you? Well, two things. One is the neighborhood association as political. And, you know, my, my first kind of under, I went to graduate school with SATA. And so 
you know, I got little bits and pieces of her work as she was going through. And I thought, well, how big of a deal can a neighborhood association be? But she, but this book in particular shows how this, um, you know, not, it's an institution without being a legal institution. It's not Congress. It's not the House of Representatives. But um, it really shapes people's lives on a day-to-day basis, um, just as the police does or just as city council does. So I thought that was really fascinating. And then the other thing um, are is that Sada brings in these kind of highbrow sociological concepts. She brings them down so the rest of us can understand them, like mm-hmm. white, middle-class, urban habitus, right? But, um, you know, I think typically because political scientists don't really delve in this kind of um, these kinds of concepts, we would just say self-segregation, but it's complicated. It's more complicated and more nuanced than that. And she really does a good job of kind of helping us to understand um, how integration um, and diversity as policies don't necessarily, um, you know, come out the way we think they're going to come out. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the book a lot. Um, it, it, uh, the research I do very much touches on on the role that that or, local organizations play in the community community and the lives of people, and and it, it ends up being often so much more important um, than than larger political structures. Sarah, what's what's next for you? This this book has come out. You're you're uh, relatively new at uh, University of Cincinnati. Is what's what's the next project that you're working on? Yeah, so um, I have recently started data collection for my next project, which is actually. A co- comparison of two neighborhoods in Cincinnati. Um, so one of the areas of pushback that I've received from my study of Creek Ridge Park is, you know, what you're arguing is about racial differences is actually about class. Um, you know, white homeowners have financial interests that they want to protect, and that's why they don't speak to people of color um, who are more likely to be renters in Creek Ridge Park. Um, and in truth, my data don't support that argument um, because white owners, as you both read, were much more likely to have positive relationships with renters if the renters were also white. Um, so I, I feel like there's some sort of race renter interaction taking place there. Um, but since I didn't specifically focus on that in this project, I really wanted to make that the centerpiece of the next project. So, so this comparison um, study of two Cincinnati area neighborhoods um, is that one is going to be predominantly white and one neighborhood is multi-ethnic and also home to white, black, and Latino residents. Um, and so what I'm really trying to understand is how does, whether you rent or own, structure your day-to-day activities and your relationships with your neighbor. So again, sort of understanding those micro-level processes of some of these, these larger structural issues to really understand, you know, how um, renters of color and, you know, white renters might experience a neighborhood differently than homeowners of color or, you know, white homeowners. And to see, um, again, sort of the, the the different ways in which, you know, we kind of talk about renter-homeowner divides in kind of crude ways. And so I, I'm really attempting to kind of complicate that relationship for this next project. Yeah, the, the, the current book, Behind the White Picket Fence, Power and Privilege in a Multi-Ethnic Neighborhood is out from UNC Press. Candace, thank you very much for being my great guest host. I uh, hope that you uh, come back again as, as a, a new book uh, publisher soon and also as, as a guest host, so thank you. Thank you, Keith. Yeah, my, uh, very much my pleasure. And Sarah, thank you very much for the book and, and for coming on. I really enjoyed it and, and hope that you come back. Maybe you could come back as a guest anytime that you would like as well. 